So, Fachi Gota buys it, and he says, all right, all right, so if you can see all this happening, and your mind is liberated because you, you've got the, you know, the uh, disenchantment and dispassion and so forth, then when your mind is liberated, do you appear after death? <laughs> the term reappears does not apply, Vacha. Well, does he not appear after death? Term appears does not apply. Reappear and not reappear. The term reappear does not apply. Neither reappear nor not reappear. The term reappears does not apply. When Master Gautam is asked these four questions, he replies, the term reappears does not apply. Bacha, the term reappears does, does not apply. Uh, to any of these. I have fallen into bewilderment, Master Gotama. I have fallen into confusion, and the measure of confidence I had gained through previous conversation with Master Gotama has now disappeared. In other words, first he accepted the Buddha not explaining what happens to the enlightened being after death. You know, he's like, okay, we'll look at it and we'll see the impermanent nature and get disenchanted and dispassionate and then get it liberated. And then what happens to me? You know, he's going right back to the same place. And the Buddha says, it is enough to cause you bewilderment, Vacha, enough to cause you confusion. For this Dharma, Vacha, is profound, hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle, to be experienced by the wise. It is hard for you to understand it when you hold another view, accept another teaching, approve another teaching, pursue a different training, and follow a different teacher. So I shall question you about this in return, Vacha. Answer as you choose. Okay. The Dharma is not something that you come to through reasoning. It's not that you sit down and you think it out. It's something you are to experience. It's profound, hard to see, hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle and to be experienced by the wise. In other words, all of Vacha's questions might be helpful, but they're not going to give him the deep answers. He has to actually sit down and meditate if he wants to get the deep answers. Understanding the five aggregates, understanding that they're impermanent, won't get you there. My teacher, the Venerable Ayakema, in addition to saying views and opinions are endless, also said that insight is the understood experience. That if you have understanding but no experience, it's not insight. For example, let's say you've never eaten a mango, right? And somebody gives you a great description of a mango. It's a fruit. It's orange, yellowish on the outside. You peel off the skin. Inside, it's very juicy, orange. Uh, you bite into it. It's sweet. It's delicious. There's this big seed in the middle. You don't eat that. You, know, you just eat this juicy fruit. You better have a towel handy. It's going to get all over you. But it's really good. Now you understand the mango. It's a peach, right? Okay. It's not until you bite into the mango. It's not until you experience it do you know what it is. Right? So all of this logical thinking, understanding the five aggregates, 
Understanding things are impermanent. Is as good as thinking a mango is a peach. You have to experience it. And the only way to experience it is to practice. You have to bite into the mango. Right? Then when you have the understood experience, you have a chance to find out what is actually going on. So, the Buddha says, look, you're not going to understand this to your practice, but I'm going to ask you a question. Let's see what you think. What do you think, Vacha? Suppose a fire were burning before you. Would you know this fire is burning before me? Yes, certainly, Master Gotama. If someone were to ask you, Vacha, what does this fire burning before you burn independence on? What would you answer? Being asked thus, Master Gotama, I would answer, this fire burning before me is, burns independence on grass and sticks. If that fire before you were to be extinguished, would you know that fire before me has been extinguished? I would, Master Gotama. If someone were to ask you, Vacha, when that fire before you was extinguished, in which direction did it go? To the east, west, north, or south? Being asked thus, what would you answer? Where does the fire go when it goes out? That does not apply, Master Gotama. The fire burned independence on fuel and grass and sticks. When that was used up, it does not get any more fuel. Being without fuel, it is extinguished. All right, so the question, which way did the fire go when it goes out, is as ridiculous as what happens to an enlightened being after death. Right. So too, Vacha, the Tathagata has abandoned that material form by which one describing the Tathagata might describe him. In other words, the form that you see, that you describe the Tathagata, the body of the Buddha, the physical body of the Buddha, the Buddha has abandoned it. Now, it doesn't mean he's left it, but he's no longer identified with it. He's no longer conceiving it of, of it as his self. He has cut it off at the root, made it like a palm stump, done away with it so that it is no longer subject to future arising. The Tathagata is liberated from reckoning in terms of material form. In other words, the Tathagata doesn't consider this form is me. Vacha, he is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable like the ocean. The term reappears does not apply. The term does not reappear does not apply. The term both reappears and does not reappear does not apply. The term neither appears nor does not reappear does not apply. The Tathagata has abandoned feeling, perception, concoctions, <coughs> consciousness. By abandoning the five aggregates, by no longer being identified with them, by no longer conceiving of a separate self based on these five aggregates, then there's not any thing that appears, just like there's no direction in which the fire goes. When this was said, the wanderer Vachagota Vachagota said to the Blessed One, Master Gautama, suppose there were a great solitary not far from a village or a town. An impermanence wore away its branches and foliage, its bark and its sapwood. 
so that on a later occasion, being divested of branches and foliage, divested of bark and sapwood, it became pure, consistent entirely of heartwood. So too, this discourse of Master Gotama's is divested of branches and foliage. Divested of bark and sapwood is pure, consistent entirely of heartwood. In other words, he liked it. He thought it was the real thing. Now, interestingly enough, you could say the Tathagata is divested of all that's not heartwood, right? He's no longer got the branches and leaves and bark and so forth. He's no longer got the material form, the feelings, the perceptions and so forth. He's not identified with them. Magnificent Master Gotama, magnificent. Master Gotama has made the Dharma clear in many ways as though he were turning upright what had been overthrown, revealing what was hidden, showing the way to one who was lost, or holding up a lamp in the dark for those with eyesight to see forms. I go to Master Gotama for refuge to the Dharma and the Sangha of Bhikkhus. From today, let Master Gotama remember me as a lay follower who has gone to him for refuge for life. In fact, Bhattacharya was so impressed, he decided to become a follower of the Buddha. Now, in the first few suttas, either he was you know, pleased with what the Buddha had to say, or when the Buddha didn't say anything, he just left. But now he's so impressed, he actually decides he's going to become a follower of the Buddha, a lay follower. All right? This is a particularly good sutta, I think. It... Uh, basically points out the, the questionnaire that was being handed around to all the recluses and Brahmins and the fact that the Buddha said, completely irrelevant. What's important is seeing the impermanent nature of everything. What's helpful is to divide everything up into the five khandhas and see the impermanent nature of each of them. And if you're trying to determine what happens to an enlightened being after death, you're working at the same as trying to determine which way the fire goes when it goes out. So I think I'm going to stop at this point and see if there are any questions or discussion. We do have a cordless mic to pass around so that we can get all of this on the CD so that your voice will show up on the Internet and people thousands of years from now can hear you ask the question. On. To speak, is it on? It's on. It's on. Um, I have an assumption that in the days of the Buddha, there were the Brahmins who did all the rituals and rituals for the gods and stuff like that. Um, how come that's not mentioned as one of the major prevailing views? It seems like it's more like Greek philosophers as opposed to talking about the gods and man's relationship to the gods. Well, I haven't covered all of the suttas. There's only, what, 17,000 of them. And there are a number of suttas where the views of the time are discussed. Uh, everything from the cosmology of the Brahmins, and the Buddha points out the flaws in their cosmology and you know how the gods think they're permanent and they're not. Um, a good reference for that, if I can turn right quickly to the... Uh, on the knowledge of beginnings, which is Diganikaya number 27, uh, has a 
description of you know how things actually came to be as opposed to the uh, the Brahmin's view of how things came to be. Uh, there are other suttas, and we'll actually take a look at uh, one where it's mentioned, where the gods, the, the highest of the Brahma gods, is the first being to come out of an unconscious state after an, a period of uh, world contraction. The Buddhist cosmology has uh, the idea of the world expanding, and then contracting. In other words, the Big Bang followed by the Big Crunch. Followed by the Big Bang, followed by the Big Crunch. And during the Big Crunch time, there are no materially existent beings. There are only immaterial beings. Okay, And at the moment of the Big Crunch and followed by the moment of the Big Bang, they're unconscious. And the first one to come to consciousness... You know, there's nobody else around. He figures he created it all, right? And as others come to consciousness, he says, oh, I created you and I created you and I created you and they become the retinue of Brahma. And then as other beings start coming conscious, they become the lesser gods and so forth. Uh, and then eventually, you know, you get the really flawed beings like humans showing up and so forth. So this is the Buddhist explanation of what's really going on when the Brahmins are talking about all the gods and so forth. The Buddhist cosmology does say that they're gods, but that all of these gods are temporary as well. In other words, they have very long lives, but they do pass away. And because they pass away so infrequently, death is not a common thing, so they don't realize they're going to die. And furthermore, they, they stay nice and young up until the very end when they age quite rapidly and die. So there, there is a great deal of discussion in there. So yeah, what I've talked about initially here is the philosophical, the uh, recluses viewpoints. But the Brahminical viewpoint comes up in a number of suttas and it's discussed and refuted as well. Though usually when it's talked about, it's not refuted in such a, uh, in a way that talks about views and opinions. It's more like, oh, you don't understand what's really going on. And the Buddha co-ops the existing cosmology. Other questions or comments in the back? If you can pass the mic. Um, is, there's all of this discussion about reincarnation as well as this cosmology and so on. Is there anything in any of this that actually has anything to do with this practice. <laughs> you mean, is there a review or opinion required in order to meditate? No. Or, or even support the practice, or even have anything to do with, the, with, the, with this practice? It could support the practice. Uh, there are a lot of skillful means that are employed. And as we'll see in one of this afternoon's suttas, they are likened to a raft to get you to the other side. But you don't need to take the raft with you when you get to the other side. So what my view and opinion is that the Buddha took the existing cosmology and used it as a skillful means for encouraging people to do their practice. 
just as today you hear Dharma teachers giving talks and talking about quantum physics or computers or something like that. At the time of the Buddha, if the Buddha had started talking about quantum physics, they'd have gone, oh man, he's lost it, right? But instead, he took the existing cosmology, tweaked it a bit, and got people to sit down and practice. So my view and opinion is that you don't have to take the cosmology. If you find the cosmology helpful, then use it. But what you do have to do is actually sit down and practice. This Dharma is difficult to see, peaceful and sublime. It can only be experienced by the wise. And the practice is the way to experience it. And so bringing in all the other cosmological things, such as rebirth, reincarnation, etc., may or may not be of help. Now, the one that does seem to be more or less required is the teaching on karma. In other words, if you think you can kill people and it doesn't cause any problems, that's going to be detrimental to your practice and you're not actually going to be able to see the sublime and peaceful things. In other words, uh, ethics is the foundation for practice. It's, it's essentially required. There are lots of philosophical speculations that could be made on the basis of ethics, not-self, free will, etc. But if you sit down and do that, you will find yourself in a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, etc. Just set it aside and do the practice. One of the most important things, I think, on the spiritual path is being very comfortable with, I don't know, right? So if you hear part of the teachings and you're not too sure about it, just recognize, I don't know. You don't have to accept it or reject it. You can simply just leave it set aside and do the practice if you can understand what the practice is, which, you know, is pretty simple. Sit down and pay attention to what's going on. So basically, the answer to your question I would be is put it in your I don't know category. Don't make the view or the opinion one way or the other and do the practice and see what comes out in the wash. Yeah, it's on. So one other thing I think it's really what... Can you hear? Is this it's okay? That, um, you know, often we can get into these meditative states that are, feel so satisfying and it feels like, oh, that's it. And, of course, it's not about achieving any state. It's about that liberation through non-clinging. So I think I tend to view these discussions of these cosmologies, you know, if you think, oh, what it's about is getting into some heaven or some other state that, that the Buddha, whether you believe in the cosmology or not, but he's just pointing to, no, it's not about... Trading this existence for that existence, so that he did, that he talked about these cosmologies in a way just to say they're also impermanent and inherently unsatisfying. So that's that's the way I hold it. Right. There's a sutta actually that says very much the same thing, and it's one of these that I have marked to actually talk about. But yeah, very much. The Buddha said, "I teach one thing and one thing only." 
the end of suffering. Not how to get to heaven or anything like that or, you know, how to make your stock portfolio go up or, I mean, none of that. Just ending dukkha. And all of the other cosmological stuff isn't important, really. What's important is understanding the nature of things as they are. If you understand the nature of things as they are, you will become disenchanted. Now, remember, disenchantment is meant as sort of literally no longer enchanted. We are enchanted by the things of the world, right? You're enchanted by your car, your stereo, your job, your partner, your, I don't know, your book collection, your CD collection, whatever. You you think this is going to bring you happiness. Once you see the way the world is, then you are no longer under that spell. You break the spell. You become disenchanted. This allows you to become dispassionate, not so hooked on the stuff. This allows cessation, the cessation of the craving and clinging for yet another great Dharma book or another CD or a faster car or whatever. This leads to peace, which leads to liberation, to Nibbana. So it's, it's the practice of seeing things as they really are. Seeing the five aggregates and their rising and passing that lead you to, to the release. You know, getting back to the karma thing, I've heard a number of teachers, Gil and um, Tan Jeff, talk about it. And it's much more fundamental than karma as far as um, ethics. It's, it's so fundamental, I don't even think about it, just the fact that if you do something, it'll have an effect. So if you take a meditation practice, this and this will happen. You know, you're doing something and it has effect, and then you can take it a step further is to investigate that effect. Did it give a positive effect or a negative effect? But, it, but if you don't believe that, then uh, you may have the opposite view that nothing matters. I mean, it's, 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 it's a more simpler thing than, than um, ethics. And it, it's something we take for granted. Right. Yeah, the, the, the teaching on karma is broader than ethics, but ethics is an, a, a very critical part of the teaching on karma. And the ethics, the morality, the sila, forms the basis for the practice. If when you sit down to meditate, you're worried about them coming and arresting you because you've been out robbing banks, guaranteed, you're not going to get concentrated. You're not going to see things as they are. Other questions or comments? Earlier you were talking about form. Mm-hmm. And um, my mind it sort of caught that and it wants a little bit more of an explanation as to what you meant by that word form. Um, you skipped it originally and then you went back to it, that part of Formations? The Formations? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Formations. Formations are, the Pali word is sankara, uh-huh. and it's usually translated in the five aggregates as mental formations. Okay. It also shows up in dependent originations where it's translated as karmic formations. And it shows up in this sort of the statement, all compounded things are impermanent. The compounded things are also sankara. So it's, it's a word that has a number of different meanings or shades of meaning. 
And so you find it translated in at least three different ways as mental formations, karmic formations, and compounded things. However, the Buddha used the same word all the time. Okay, he didn't use mental formations, and, right? Okay, he used sankara. The best English word I know that can be used all the time in all of these situations is concoctions, right? So, uh, this stage is a concoction. It's a compounded thing. It was made. It was concocted, right? My thoughts are concoctions. All right, so this is the mental formations as part of the five uh, aggregates. My intention to come here and teach is also a concoction. That's an intention, uh, a karmic formation, right? Actually, the word sankara probably deserves an entire Dharma talk all on its own and the implications of viewing it as uh, a, uh, a single concept, such as concoctions. We tend to take in sensory input and break the world into concoctions, right? When you actually look with your eyes, your eyes get a holistic impression, right? What we do is we go through and we carve out the colored shapes. You know, we make the people and the chairs and the bells and the microphones and everything else. We, we break it up into concoctions. We concoct all the individual things of the world. And we miss their holistic interconnectedness. By looking at the word sankara as concoctions and realizing our part in perceiving them and thus concocting them, uh, we begin to get a sense of, you know, the world isn't exactly what we thought it was. They're not a bunch of separate things in the world. It's all very deeply interconnected. So, yeah, the word sankara has uh, a lot of uh, rich gold in it and can be very deeply mined. Right. The word fabrication is often used uh, as a translation for concoctions. And I think that's a better translation than uh, formations. Formations is the most common one. Fabrication is a better one. I like concoctions because it's, you know, it's, it's a word we don't use that much. And uh, I think it's a very, very good translation. Okay, I suggest that we take a break.